You're listening to an Empavillion podcast. Conversations about design and the world we live in. For more, visit our archive at empavillion.org and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. Right. Welcome on this lovely evening in Melbourne. Um, My name is Sue Lim and I'm going to be the moderator tonight. Um, I am an experienced strategist and designer from Free State um, and I will in due course have these lovely people to the left of me introduce themselves. Um, But first of all, uh, I wanted to welcome you and thank you in joining us with this conversation on memory making. And of course, this place um, in Melbourne has been the site of um, memory making and storytelling for for thousands and thousands of years. So for the people of the Eastern Kulin Nations, the Boon people, the Woiwurrung people, this meeting place has been a place where knowledge Um, and culture have been shared for maybe 70,000 years. So I want you to begin by perhaps taking some time to pause and reflect on that together. And let's together acknowledge the people of the Eastern Kulin Nations as the traditional custodians of this land. We pay our respects to their land, their ancestors and their elders, past, present and to the future. We also acknowledge the traditional custodians of the various lands where anybody is listening to a recording of this event uh, in the future. So perhaps just take a pause and connect with the country that we're on. Close your eyes, take it in, embed that in your memory. So the theme tonight is memory making and together we're going to explore memory making experiences through cognitive science, evolutionary psychology, the role of place and the senses and of course the real importance of storytelling in memory making. So I'm going to just define what we mean by memory in the first instance. It is a neurochemical process and a mechanism uh, around the capacity to encode, um, store and retrieve information and experiences. So if we think about in that context, then memory making is all about how do we create experiences that are more easily encoded, stored and retrieved? And how do we enable the capacity to improve those aspects? So to the left of me, I have these three amazing speakers who are going to begin the conversation tonight. Uh, So please introduce yourself and perhaps share with us a moment, um, a memorable moment. So LaToya, if you could start. Hi everyone, thanks so much for coming. Um, My name's LaToya Forsyth. I'm the Head of Marketing and Visitor Experience just down the road, South Bank Boulevard at Melbourne Recital Centre. Um, We're one of the only uh, live music venues that's dedicated solely to the performance of live music across every single genre. Um, I'm also the chair of the board of the Emerging Writers Festival, um, which is Australia's premier literary festival for emerging storytellers as well. Um, The memory that I have chosen to talk about, um, I find fascinating because it demonstrates the way in which the focus of the memory can shift depending on when you choose to retrieve it. So for me, I, my parents raised me on a very staple diet of classic rock from a very young age. Um, I saw Bon Jovi when I was nine, I saw Kiss when I was 11, and then in 2004, my parents introduced me to the wonderful music man that is David Bowie. Um, And that was at Rod Laver, and it was one of the most largest sort of stadium shows my little teenage eyes and ears and senses had ever seen. So for me, 
that moment was pivotal in delivering me this music man on a platter that I fell in love with for subsequent years and I'm still obsessed with to this day. Um, and at that time, I was completely enamoured by the way he moved, by the way he sounded. Um, my parents bought me a hoodie of David Bowie's that I wore for ages and ages and ages until it perished. Um, and I would always look back on that concert as a defining moment in my love for music and love for live music. So cut to 2015 and sadly, and not to bring the mood down, but sadly, um, my mum died of metastatic breast and lung cancer. And when I look back on that memory now, the way I retrieve it and what I focus on is fundamentally altered. So when I look back at that beautiful memory where I discovered one of the greatest musical loves of my life, that is now secondary. And I am focused on the way in which my mum's jaw was agape as I was staring with my jaw open as David Bowie came onto stage. Um, it was my mum's idea to buy me a hoodie that I would wear until it perished. And so, yeah, it's, it's one of those things that memories can shift and the way in which they generate meaning can shift along with your life circumstances too. Thanks for sharing that, Latoya. Jess? Hi, everybody. Um, my name is Jessica Watson. Um, I'm a creative strategist. Uh, my background was actually in brand, and then I moved into place branding, and then I moved into experience design. So it's, it's been a bit of a journey. Um, but each one of those steps, um, I was moving in the right direction. I didn't know what an experience designer was in the beginning, um, but it's this weird combination of a love of place, a love of brand, a love of identity, and a love of people that I just get to merge all together into the work I do. Um, and memory for me, I was living in Shanghai and uh, myself and my other colleague were known as aliens or foreigners um, and we were looking for more cultural experiences to do. And my colleague, um, Joy, um, she just said, why don't you come to my parents' house? She's a professional dumpling maker. And I'm like, oh, of course, this sounds amazing. So we ended up taking the train like 40 minutes out of the city. That was a memorable experience in itself because I hadn't been out of Shanghai City. Um, so we got to see the countryside. Um, and then it was the hands and it was the making and it was um, working with a, an expert who was my colleague's mum. And so we, we shared stories. We had a language barrier. We couldn't understand one another. But through the act of making and through the personal touch and through just the amazement of somebody taking the time to show these two foreigners how to make dumplings in their own home and then cook them and then share the meal together. Um, I just always remember this experience and, and I bring it up a lot because um, it represents sort of home and kindliness and, and a bit of the unexpected. So, yeah. Very cool. <laughs> uh, my name's Tim Stroh. Uh, I have spent the last three years getting to the point where all I have left is to write uh, my introduction and hit submit uh, on a PhD uh, focused on uh, evolutionary or evolved psychological mechanisms and their roles in influencing perception and decision. Uh, I also have spent much of the last uh, five years, four of them to be specific, uh, working for a company called Art Processors who designs experiences in museums uh, and studying people who attend museums and how they have experiences and what enables them to have better memories about them. Um, my memory uh, to share, I'm going to swap it up here and share two actually. Um, first and foremost, a musical one. Um, I was trying to think of the most obscure thing that was stored back there somewhere uh, and it's the following fact. Uh, on July 4th, 1976, the Ramones played a gig at the Roundhouse in London, and in the audience were the original members of The Clash, uh, The Sex Pistols, I think it was Susie and the Banshees, The Damned, and like two other punk bands. Now, none of those bands had formed as at that point, but within one year, all of those bands had formed, and many of them had become world famous already. Um, now, I have no idea why I remember that in that degree of detail. I do like the Ramones, but like, not enough to justify that. Um, second memory, uh, 
I was lucky enough to visit Disneyland uh, with my two kids uh, when they were about 10 and 12. Um, hadn't been there in probably 30 years, but I had been very lucky uh, in that I spent some time in Southern California. My parents had taken us there for three straight days. So this is 30 years later, I'm with my two kids and my wife, and they're asking, oh, how do we get to this ride? We want to go there. And I don't know how I know, but I'm able to give explicit directions to basically every ride in Disneyland that still was there. So there was new stuff, and I didn't know California Adventure Park at all. But it was so formative, I could remember every single ride, how to get there, what were the shortcuts, everything. So those are my two. Fantastic. Great stories. Um, I mean, LaToya, your story reminds me how old I am because I saw David Bowie at Kuyong <laughs> before Rod Laver existed, so that's a bit of a worry. Um, and we were, we were sort of, you know, uh, ruminating earlier about how, you know, we probably know all of the words to every song ever written in the 80s, but we don't really remember what we ate for dinner last night or what our next meeting coming up is. But, you know, writing and digital storage um, has kind of enabled us to forget. I mean, who knows people's telephone numbers anymore? You know, I, I used to know all those things. I, now I barely know my own, you know, because we've got these sorts of devices. But, you know, when it comes to experience design, you know, we talk about the critical nature of creating memory and why it's important. So I'm going to ask Tim, is memory important in this digital age and why? Uh, something I'm actually very passionate about is the answer is an unequivocal yes. And uh, I would put forward not to, um, I don't know, be chicken little and the sky is falling, but there, there's some actual risk that there's kind of a dulling going on in society because uh, our perception, one of the things that's coming out of current research is that you really can't separate memory from perception, choice, decision-making, etc. We, we kind of filter everything that happens to us through our memories. We make new memories by storing things effectively to existing memories. And so the, the fewer memories we form, it's kind of harder to form new, rich, complex memories. Um, and while there are some wonderful things about digital technologies in the modern world, uh, there's research, for example, that shows uh, most memories utilize uh, the part of our brain that pays attention to where we are and, and our location. And so if you use Google Maps, for example, to get from A to B, you will actually remember the journey there less and you will in fact remember what you experience there less and your quality ranking of it. For example, if you go to a restaurant that's you know 40 minutes away and you don't pay attention, you just follow Google Maps and you get there and then you leave. Even though you had a wonderful meal, you're, you'll give it four stars instead of five. Whereas if you had plotted your course, you, you would remember it much more and remember enjoying it, or dissatisfaction the same. You will rank it less low than you would have otherwise. And so uh, unequivocal yes, right? Forming wow. memories and what causes memories to be stored, really, really important. Everyone go out to the park more, <laughs> ride Stop your bike using without Google using Maps. Google Maps, you know, do things like that. Fantastic. God, that's kind of alarming, actually. <laughs> um, Latoya, how important is memory to your work? Can you tell us some stories about that? Yeah, sure. So, um, for us, unsurprisingly, it is central as well. Um, our visitor experience strategy, which launched late last year, um, details our mission, which is to co-create meaningful moments and memories around music for our community. And it's that co-creation piece that is really central because because we can 
do as much as we can to listen, learn, understand um, how we can serve our community in myriad different ways. But then it's also what the audience, what the artists, what the stakeholders and other members of the community bring to the party and to the experience as well. And for us, memory isn't just relative to service and placemaking um, and the overall experience. It is about how it can improve and impact well-being, how it can help people who live with disability, um, how people remember things nostalgically, um, how elderly can reconnect from to their past and so much more which we're motivated by and forms a really large part of our learning and access stream which works with infants and toddlers all the way through to elderly folks, um, kids with vision impairment um, and folks with dementia and Alzheimer's, connecting them with music in the ways in which they can comprehend and understand um, and engage meaningfully with is really critical. Thank you. Jess, as a creative strategy, what role does memory play in kind of brand experiences? Um, Really, really important. I think you mentioned Disneyland, one of the best, you know, brands out there and super memorable. They have hyper-designed their place down to um, you can't take more than 15 steps and, and you'll find a rubbish bin. Like, that's how hyper-designed the whole entire place is. And what's brilliant about the work they've done is they've taken um, all the basic human needs, like our pyramid of hierarchy of needs, so water, food, that's why there's an abundance of food and abundance of water, and then you're open to new experiences. After all, your basic human needs have been taken care of. Now we're open to new experiences. So they are so clever. Um, and I think if you take that formula, you know, a place that is memorable, a story, and then a heightened sense of emotion, like that is just gold. Um, and there's this brilliant Netflix documentary. It's called The Mind Explained. And they go into that a little bit more. Um, and so this combination of brand and identity and calling to your community and creating experiences for them based around a place that's relevant to them, a story that's relevant to your audience. And then what emotions do you want to get out of that audience for the day? Um, curating all of that is a lot of fun. Um, and it can be impactful in many different ways from the work I'm doing with luxury hotel sector down to, you know, more social benefits sort of work with, um, you know, women in midwifery centres, for example, or um, our experience of circular key and how we navigate through it. Like they all have the same kind of problem of um, attachment to place and storytelling and narrative and how all of that comes together to have a better experience um, to create longer lasting memories. Fantastic, thank you. Um, Samuel Johnson said, uh, the true art of memory lies in the art of attention. Um, and I think, uh, you know, it ten in this sort of day of distraction, you know, we're always distracted by something. Um, attention is kind of seen to be, you know, one of the most luxurious things in the world. And I know, Jess, you've been doing a lot of work around luxury um, and what that means. Can you tell us a bit more about that in this context? Um, I was working with a brand recently. I got a lovely overseas trip, which was great. Um, and But it was this luxury hotel sector and their tagline is indelible marks, which is obviously a bit of jargon there, but basically it means creating long-lasting memories. And I thought this is so curious. They're teaching their thousands of staff that your number one job is to create long-lasting memories for every single person that passes by you. And I was just like bewildered and, and impressed um, that that was the mission of, of this, yes, luxury hotel, but then we delve deeper into, well, what does luxury mean to you? And how do we create these um, long-lasting memories for every single guest? And yeah, the, the, the personal stories were just fascinating. It was down to small moments of um, a, a tour guide who had a bad weather day, taking out the mother and daughter the next day for sunrise and then doing the best Instagram photo shoot, you know, that they've ever experienced in their life. And they were impressed by um, the level of service and the unexpected, um, yeah, that the, the tour guide took them out and cared so much about the photos that was being taken. Um, down to the luxury of time as well and giving back time. So... Um, yeah, the, 
luxury can mean a lot, but also it can be done in the small ways. It, it seems like the personal touch and going the extra mile um, and reading between the lines to find something that that person wasn't expecting made the biggest difference to their guests. Yeah, I love that, the unexpected kind of um, delight perhaps. Um, but Latoya, you're doing a whole lot of work where you're helping people make new memories, almost like creating new identities. Um, and that, that's really fascinating. So can you tell us about that? Yeah, so a couple of, well, a few years ago now, uh, we did a research project with uh, the University of Melbourne and Melbourne Business School, which looked at the way in which immersion in live music and live concert experiences contributes positively to folks' well-being, um, particularly when um, in the context of a really immersive setting. So, you know, lights down, artist on stage, really intimate um, experience. Uh, and from the data set, which comprised both folks who were first time visitors to the centre, as well as multiple time visitors to the centre, 92% said unwaveringly that their well-being had been positively enhanced through immersing themselves in a live concert experience in our venue, which is pretty magical and pretty special. Um, and so, utilising the findings from that research project, we started looking at potential partners um, within the community that we could start co-creating um, ways in which we can benefit uh, marginalised communities, as an example. And on International Women's Day last year, we launched a partnership with Queen Victoria Women's Centre. Um, and the partnership is uh, grounded in uh, supporting recent arrivals, uh, migrant women, refugees, uh, with the social and emotional power of music. So we nurture them every step of the way. We help curate a range of events in which they can come to the centre, um, make themselves at home in a safe space, have some food, drink, get to know each other, and then go and enjoy a beautiful live music concert of all different genres and experiences, and then bond together at the end of the show and hopefully bring some joy into what is um, and has been an extremely traumatic and tumultuous experience um, for them as they have left war-torn war countries to come to Australia um, and set up their new lives and new homes. Um, a lot of these communities are also very isolated. Uh, English is a language barrier. That's the beauty of music. Music's a universal language. They can come in, sit down and just immerse themselves in something that either helps them heal from the uh, trauma that they've experienced sort of subconsciously or participate in a moment of escapism that takes them away from the realities of their everyday, the gender and cultural norms that they um, uh, are required to, you know, abide by, um, and just have that moment to themselves. And yeah, it's something that we're extremely proud of and see the benefit on their faces every time the concert ends and the lights go up. So, yeah. That's incredibly powerful. Um, as you can see, you know, as a tool for rebuilding lives, uh, you know, um, I think changing identities and really kind of leaning into um, the way new memories can be made. Um, and we've, we've got Tim here who um, can tell us a bit more about the theory. Um, so, Tim, tell us how it all works. You know, what do we need to... How do we, how do we decode these um, these systems and thinking? Now, I've really got to try and be succinct. Uh, I mentioned before there's an area of the brain that kind of keeps track of where we are. It, it, we, we, we locate ourselves, and it kind of just keeps track of that. Um, it's involved in most memory formation, or much of memory formation. And there are kind of a couple of different formulas for it. Music is a great one. Um, but if you kind of think about the brain as a uh, a collection of these 
these modules, right? There's a module for facial recognition. Anywhere in the world you go, you can basically do a little smiley face and show that to people and they will recognize it as a face. Um, there's, a, there's a great image of a blobfish uh, which was nominated as the world's ugliest creature, and that actually, that's like a prize. Um, but it's this wonderful picture, and it, it looks like a human face. Uh, th there's a cluster of neurons that recognizes faces. Um, we share that cluster of neurons with tigers and bears, some fish, right? It goes way back. Uh, so if you think about the brain as a collection of these kind of purpose-built modules, it's not limited to that. Uh, there's, a, there's a lot of um, general purpose material up there too. Uh, the more of those little circuits you can activate, so if you play music, if you have a scent, um, if you are in a familiar location, if you have visual cues that people are familiar with, the more of them that you can activate, the more, and in particular if they have a pre-existing memory that also uses that collected pattern of activated areas, um, the more likely they are or the easier it is to leverage that pre-existing pattern and have them form a new memory that uses that and adds to it. And a great example, I think uh, we spoke about, there's a, I mentioned the facial recognition circuit. There's another circuit that recognizes or triggers when you are with your members of your family or people who you consider part of your family. Um, if you know who Jennifer Aniston is, you have a single neuron in your brain that is representative of Jennifer Aniston, and it would be that way for every individual that you know, that you can visually recognize, that is linked to the facial recognition circuit. If she were in your family, it would also be linked to the cluster that indicates this person is part of your family. Um, and effectively what's happening is you a memory is a physical representation of something you've experienced that is the collective pattern of all of the things, not all of the things, of many of the things that you experienced when you made that memory. And so the more of it you can activate, the more relevance it has. If it has novelty, unexpected value, you'll kind of punch through that short-term memory. Uh, like you have to, to form a memory, you've got to move from the short-term to the long term, otherwise it doesn't last. Um, so you've got to have a, a mechanism for doing that. Um, I'm, I'm, I could keep talking here for quite a while. <laughs> Let me know if you want more. Um, but that's, so, the, that's the quick and dirty. Yeah, so, so you're saying we're all connected by the blobfish and Jennifer Aniston, I think is what I'm... We absolutely are. I'm hearing. <laughs> you heard it first here tonight. Um, so, I mean, what, what it sounds like is that we need to kind of connect more of those synapses or, or make more of those connections. And so I want to just talk a little bit about designing for memory then um, and the role of place. So, you know, place and memory have been long connected. You know, the, the ancient Greeks developed a technique called memory palace where they, um, you know, remembered information through assigning slabs of text to, you know, places in your house and then you were able to recall it by moving through your house. Uh, you know, Giulio Camillo kind of took that further into memory theatre where it was actually a theatre that housed, you know, everything that could be known, perhaps, you know, the, the first version of the internet or something. But even, you know, more ancient, um, you know, Indigenous cultures and, and the Aboriginal culture um, assigned... Uh, facts to places, you know, it was a matter of survival, um, you know, where the food sources were, where tribe politics um, resided. But of course, with the Indigenous populations, they started to also tell narratives, so through stories and song. Um, and, you know, interestingly, Monash University have recently done um, a research study for medical students who need to obviously um, do a lot of rote learning and do a lot of recall of facts. Um, and they trained half the group with the memory palace technique and half the group where they assigned narratives, uh, you know, over the place um, in the sort of Aboriginal technique um, to discover that, you know, with the stories, no surprise, you get more recall and it's more enjoyable in terms of the process. 
Um, so if we can kind of lean into that, um, and uh, does anyone want to sort of talk about that multidisciplinary nature of, you know, all of the senses, the place, the sounds, the smells? Perhaps, Jess, you might want to start with this. Well, I'm instantly reminded that you talk about that from my recent trip to Japan. And I was just thinking how brilliant they've done as a place brand about associating um, the cherry blossom and the plum blossom to Japan and how the smell and the sight and, and um, all the experiences and the anticipation of going to Japan for cherry blossom season um, all comes together. And so, yeah, that's just one really good example, I think. Um, yeah, did you have anything to add? Um, yeah, I think it's really interesting when it comes to a live music venue because I will be the first to say that we don't have all the answers and we're still on that sort of discovery understanding journey because our audience and community base is so vast. Um, but we have developed an experience framework that identifies what the fundamental areas are of um, engaging folks through the experience and then what the flex areas are. So there are opportunities to really flex and stretch to customise or cater to something that's a bit more niche to make that experience a little bit more memorable outside of the foundational um, pieces. And so when it comes to that sort of multi-sensorial approach um, for the audience experience in this context, um, we established four different pillars that those senses come under. So the first one is ambience and engagement and the different modalities of how the venue operates by day and then by night because it's two very different contexts. Um, service and function, so looking at all of the retail, ticketing, food and beverage and amenities aspect um, for folks. Accessibility and inclusivity, um, both in person and digitally, um, to make sure that we are on that journey to make the centre a welcome space for all. Um, and then something that underpins all of them but also stands alone um, on its own is listen and learn, um, because we need to be consistently uh, asking and listening and evolving and adapting every minute of every day to make sure that the space caters to and addresses, you know, the broader the broader audience base, and it's not going to be uh, one size fits all. That's wonderful. Thank you, um, Tim. Can you tell us a bit about the role of storytelling? Why do stories make a difference to memory? So. Uh, couple of interesting bits of research. One is that if you present something in the form of gossip, and gossip has a very technical definition, uh, people are far more likely to remember it, both listen to it and remember it, right? And, and without going into all the details, something that is uh, effectively a story about another person's actual or potential romantic partners something, an event that impacted their status within some group, um, not limited to just those two things, but those are two examples. If you present a story uh, or, or information in that way, um, you, you can get kids to learn math better, right? Um, and uh, primarily raise that because th this idea that the mind is a blank slate, that we're born and it's all blank and you learn as you go. Um, Current thinking is not that. Current thinking is very much basically we're born with with scaffolding, right? It's not a building. It's not a complete brain. We have these we have these structures, and they're linked in certain ways when when we're born, um, and that's kind of the foundation of memory. So things are what you're, that initial scaffolding is the memories partial that you are adding to that when you start to build memories. Um, now that scaffolding is really important and while there's a lot still being conjectured more than known, uh, if you look at comparative folklore and mythology for example, uh, effectively every culture around the world has uh, a trickster god, right? Loki from the Marvel movies. Um, these archetypes keep reoccurring kind of everywhere you go. And so one of the current lines of research is, 
is that in fact uh, a representation or a byproduct of this innate scaffolding, this evolved psychological mechanism that is effectively a pre-inclination to listen to and store stories that have certain characteristics. Um, because gossip is definitely that way, and it's really not much of a leap to then go, oh, stories are that way. Um, and if you think about the stories that you like listening to, uh, that you like to tell, you know, there are definitely commonalities, and those are pretty consistent around the world. Not 100%, um, but pretty consistent. And, and with that and the, you know, keep in mind stories and the more, uh, more areas of the brain you can activate when you're telling those stories, everyone will be more effective at creating experiences and telling stories. Fantastic. Um, we do a lot of work for airports uh, and, um, you know, one of the things that we often talk about with airport design is sometimes there are experiences that you want to remember because they're delightful, but there are also experiences that perhaps you would prefer to forget, like standing in a queue, losing your luggage, those sorts of things. So... Um, I'm interested in understanding how do we surface some memories over others, you know? So what makes, um, what makes things or experiences highly memorable or how do we bring them to the fore and how do we perhaps quiet some of the memories that we would rather not have? Perhaps Tim, one for you first. <laughs> so many answers, <laughs> so many questions. Um, uh, very pragmatically, uh, the last thing that is experienced is often one of the strongest memories. Um, in terms of encouraging the recollection of certain things and discouraging the recollection of other things, um, we spoke about unexpected delight before. Um, that's a, a, a fairly well-researched concept. Uh, effectively satisfying someone is insufficient to forge a memory usually. But if you not just exceed, but exceed in an unexpected way, and the unexpected part is the key bit, um, you're much more likely to result in a stored experience. Um, if you can do that, if you can achieve the unexpected uh, in and around the thing that you are hoping someone will remember, um, and in particular in a way that leverages something that you think they already have stored, right? If, if you think of, um, maybe not the smiley face, but I don't know, an image of an animal, a wolf, right? Most people can think of a wolf. You know, you can use icons like that or images like that uh, to trigger a memory that everyone has and kind of, you know, bolt something onto it, uh, if that makes sense. I mean, we, again, could talk about this for <laughs> hours and hours. We're too polite. <laughs> um, the, the point that you made about the, the last part of the experience really being the most or more, more memorable um, definitely applies in the event going space. And there's uh, research and literature that details that the first 75% of someone's event going journey and experience could be magical. But if the last 25% is an absolute debacle, then that's going to taint the overall experience and really reduce the overall enjoyment. And so from a, a sort of event going experience at the, at the centre, if someone's had an amazing time, everything was up to scratch, they exit the building, they cross the road, a tram dings at them because they're jaywalking over the tram tracks, they get into the art centre car park and four shows have come out of the art centre at the same time and it takes them 35 minutes to exit the car park, someone's nodding because they <laughs> have been there. <laughs> um, then that that's what they'll take away with them, that frustration which will taint the overall experience. And 
that's challenging for event-going experience creators because they're things that we can't control. That's a completely different entity. It's, you know, once they walk out our door, <laughs> we, we have no control over what happens to them next. And so that's where that co-creation piece again comes, comes to the fore. Um, and we have to work out what the fundamentals are and what the flex areas are that we can um, control. And then the rest is unfortunately up to chance. Um, yeah, just in support of what you were both saying um, and relating it to places is this idea of a narrative arc and how you can actually apply it to a place and to an experience. Um, so a narrative arc actually follows a storyline really closely and follows an emotional arc as well. Um, there's, you know, s studies that say that you'll remember the anticipation of going somewhere and you'll remember the last moment. Which, which is kind of what you were saying. Um, and you won't really remember much in between. So the anticipation of going to Disneyland and, and then the kiss goodnight, the big fireworks, you know, that, that sort of thing. Um, and if you apply that to places, um, I've been working in Ballarat, City of Ballarat recently, and, you know, they've got some good stories and they've got some bad stories, going back to your original question about what do we want to forget and what do we want to bring forward. Um, but sometimes they don't have to be memories that we want to forget you can actually weave them in really beautifully into this positive recollection and turn a bad story into a good story. You know, Mona does that so well, Hobart um, and the Mona Foma or Dark Mofo Festival is taking something of a bit of a negative story or a bad history, but celebrating it and, and, and um, joining new memories to an old stimulus um, to create something new. Um, so City of Ballarat is exploring that as well, which is really interesting. How do you weave these different storylines all together? within a city centre and a visitor experience. Um, and, yeah, I think that's, yeah, really exciting. Two other, hopefully, quick thoughts. Um, uh, not knowing why everyone is here, um, but if you happen to run a restaurant or are a teacher or really whatever you're doing, um, another uh, readily deployed tool right, is give people a story to tell. Even if the experience is terrible, if you give them a story that lets them go tell their friends, tell their family this story, uh, first and foremost, they probably will. And if part of that is that relating the experiences that they want to make it a positive, they want to recommend the restaurant, what have you, right? If you give them a story to tell, um, odds are they will remember it. <laughs> And they will go tell that story, right? They want to relay stories. They, people want to do that. Um, second thing is that um, in addition to throwing out the idea of a blank slate, uh, people often think about the brain as if there's the kind of the brain and it's connected to the rest of you. Um, the brain is an extension of the nervous system, not the other way around. Uh, and there's a, a huge amount of research right now that, for example, shows that when someone talks about heartache, they've just had an emotional event and they talk about heartache, uh, the area in the brain that manages physical pain is being activated. Uh, it's the same, you know, when people talk about, oh, I've got this gut instinct, I've got this gut feeling that I should do this thing, right? There, there are as many neurons in your gastrointestinal tract as in a house cat's brain. Right? Your stomach is as smart as a house cat. And when you make decisions, these things are all connected. It's, it's not the brain is separate from all of the other parts of your nervous system. You have, a, you have this sense of a gut instinct because the decision is being made in part in your gut, which is why if you're hungry or thirsty, why Disneyland, you know, take those things off the table and those things won't influence the decisions and the memories and everything else. Um, it's really worth keeping in mind because each of the, if you can think to label an emotion or a, a feeling like oh, I'm hungry or I've got a stomach ache, or if you can think of a label for it, there's, there's probably a dedicated module for that. And the more you're aware of those and, and take away the ones that you don't want <laughs> and you know service the ones that you want people to have and have the, the memory, the more likely you are to form memories and memories that you want people to have um, and change them. I mean, we have PTSD, there's tremendous research right now about how 
really subtle treatment techniques, just, you know, effectively stroking a person's hand can fundamentally alter how they're recalling uh, a very traumatic event. Uh, and so it's, it's really, I mean, it's good research. It's wonderful research. I think it's also important to add to that, that it, it shouldn't just be expected of the individual to help themselves. This is exactly where seeking help and therapy practices really um, kickstart that with uh, things like cognitive behavioural therapy, cognitive diffusion, etc. That incentive and motivation and encouragement and guidance to be able to reprogram those memories, speaking from a grief experience, going from really negative, awful sort of memories to being able to reframe them into positive, I wouldn't have been able to do that myself. Um, and so making sure that, or, you know, being aware that you can seek help and it's not all on you when it's a really negative or traumatic event is, yeah, really important. A great call-out. So we've spent 45 minutes um, in a pretty wide-ranging conversation, I think. Um, so I'm going to open it up to you guys. Have you got any questions, comments? Would anyone like to tell a story around your practice of memory-making we do have some microphones uh, in the back. <laughs> oh, thanks. Hi. Hello. Oh, it's quite loud. Um, hey, I'm Stav, and I'm a singer-songwriter and a teacher. And this was perfect timing. You'll never believe it. I've got some gossip. <laughs> <laughs> perfect. Um, about two weeks ago, the topic in class, I teach English as a foreign language, and the topic was news. And I was like, do you guys read the news? And they're like, no, not really. And I was like, but do you tell stories? Do you gossip? And <laughs> I just, yeah, we turned the whole class into a gossip class. And it was so much fun. It's just like, apparently, and just the whole, <laughs> the whole dynamic of the class changed. And just the idea that, Everyone loves to gossip, but not everyone might admit it. <laughs> was um, just really great. And, yeah, this has been so amazing. That's um, awesome. Thank you. Yeah. Um, for what it's worth, uh, yeah. gossip in most studies has a very negative connotation. Yeah, but... <laughs> well, uh, the reason I raise it is yeah. that um, from an evolutionary standpoint, the, the reason this evolved psychological mechanism exists is entirely positive. And there are a number of uh, discrete cultures where gossip, in fact, doesn't have a negative connotation at all, but is highly valued. Which and, ones? Um, I, 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 forgive okay. me. That's okay. That's okay. <laughs> <laughs> that I have to go look up. Uh, but it, it, like, for what it's worth, hugely powerful tool for teaching. And, and really, it's just avoiding... Uh, because it can be used in a very punitive way. There's, there's a lot of research that, mm, in fact, that is why it has the negative effect, but it, it's one referent group of people effectively having a, a, a negative effect on an individual yeah. or someone. So as long as you avoid that, it, it's purely constructive. It's about how do we, it's where do we find the food, right? It's, yeah. it's avoid that risky area, right? Don't do this, it will knock you down you know, in people's self-esteem, um, mm. or rather people's esteem, um, you know, so yeah, purely constructive, and, and if it helps, you know, mm. if you can get people to think about it differently. Obviously for performing music as well, this whole, the whole topic is, yeah, I mean, right, yeah, amazing. Wonderful. Um, yeah, I just wanted to ask a question, just, I want to pass on the mic as well, just wondering if the connotation of gossip how it's related to gender roles and women, um, and yeah, maybe your perspective on how, yeah, all of that. Women being associated with gossip more than men, even though it's not exactly true. Um, uh, yeah, uh, uh, I will be succinct, uh, which is to reinforce exactly what you've said. Men gossip just as much as women, <laughs> right? There is absolutely no difference. Um, and there really isn't any difference even in what they talk about uh, the, the only difference would be tonality, right? It, it's the same as, um, 
men and women are equally competitive. They're equally aggressive. Uh, there's a misunderstanding about testosterone. Testosterone doesn't cause violence. Testosterone goes up after a competition in the winter. Uh, so throw that one out, old science. Um, yeah, I can wrap it on, right? It, it's, there are tonality differences, that's it. Might I add that it's potentially the perception of tonality as well. And I think in the lovely gender norms and stereotypes that uh, being a woman um, uh, dictate, there is always uh, so much more of a, a judgment placed, um, whereas there is more unfortunately, concessions made towards uh, men who do exactly the same thing. Um, it's just one of the many double standards that exist um, when you compare genders. And tragically, that is reflected in the research, right? It's, I would encourage anyone to look up research on gossip. It's fascinating, but there's no question. It's like you read it and go, how did they get away with writing this? This is not, this is not good and it's wrong. Right, it's fundamentally wrong. That's a statement you could apply to many things. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> um, any, anybody else would like to share? Hello, um, my name's Maggie. I wanted to share but also ask a question at the end. I love talking about gossip. Um, there's a person I follow on TikTok who's teaching like history stories through gossip, a gossip lens, which is so fun. And I also wanted to bring up a podcast called Normal Gossip, which is so good. And I really recommend people listen to that. But my question here to link it back to, um, I guess, your professions is how can you harness the power of gossip in your work and can you proactively put it in? Like, yeah. <laughs> From a conventional marketing perspective, I would rebrand that as word of mouth. <laughs> um, so how can I harness word of mouth either about the artist or about the experience or, you know, engage, uh, you know, an influencer for a campaign to be able to help us deliver, deliver that. So that's my marketing lens on it. <laughs> um, interestingly, with the city of Ballarat, we found out that um, even though it was a visitor study, we found out that the local residents were actually put out by this visitor study because they wanted to be known as the experts. So, Belleration. Um, and so, they were almost um, in competition with one another, the idea that we love our visitors and we want to provide a wonderful visitor experience. But the local residents were like, no, but I'm the, I'm the knowledge holder. Like, my status is from showing my guests around and knowing all the best places to go and, and having the gossip. Um, so in that case, we're trying to work with both. And how can you champion the local residents with all of the gossip and with all the knowledge, as well as providing um, knowledge for people who might not have their trusted advisor? I might also reframe gossip as kind of informal communication, if you like. So if you're thinking about um, a, a sort of formal, perhaps corporate communication plan, you know, often they're less effective than the kind of viral piece because people tell stories. So it's the storytelling thing again, you know, around people passing on stories in an informal manner that becomes you know, um, more established in terms of what truth is, I suppose, rather than um, perhaps more untrustworthy formal communications. So I think there's definitely roles for, you know, what you might consider gossip in, in managing change, in general communications, in getting people on board, etc. I would, would add, uh, like all tools, it can be used constructively or not so constructively. Um, but from a very pragmatic standpoint, if you think about gossip just as a subtype of storytelling, uh, and for example, with artwork, if you put a story about the artist next to the painting, in addition to the normal information of you know this year, et cetera, here's this really interesting story about, I don't know, their love life, people are far more likely to remember the painting and the story and the details. Um, and it can be really simple things like purportedly, you know, okay, now it's gossip. Um, so, allegedly, yeah, anything like that. 
No, thanks for that. I think I just had a thought about when I went to the Picasso exhibit at NGV, there's a lot of his stories that are related to the to the, to the pieces themselves, which helped me recall the pieces. But um, sorry, no gossip to follow on. But um, I think one of the uh, themes I've heard from um, all the panel talk tonight is around kind of activating different modules in your brain and different senses and perceptions. I wanted to hear kind of, do you think there's any perception perceptions or senses that are underutilized in experience and memory making and have you seen good examples of that um, being utilized like maybe perceptions around a sense of space and time or I feel like smell is often underutilized but it's a hard one to get right probably um, so would love to hear in your experience um, any good examples. Um, yeah I have an example recently back in hotel world um, there was one anecdote from the group and they said every time they enter one of these autograph collection hotels, it's the same scent and they're reminded of home and that is like home home away from home and, and all the attached memories of the highest level of service and the relaxation that they get when they go there and it's all triggered by just this simple sense of smell. Um, and so I guess Hotel World knows this really, really well, but I would agree with what you were saying that it's totally underutilised, but it has the highest amount of trigger, but please back me up if I'm shouting gossip, but <laughs> um, I believe that <laughs> smell has the highest recall factor and it's totally underutilised. Um, Interesting though, when if you do speak to a perfumer, they do say that the combination is, is so unique to get right and to associate that with something new. You always need something that's a little bit like abnormal, maybe a little bit disgusting, should we say, within the smell to actually make it interesting. And so interest plus smell is what would actually create maybe a deeper meaning, I assume. <laughs> Following on from that, we actually had a performance in the salon where an art, the salon's our smaller space, um, where an artist matched scent with different types of music. And so when the musicians would play a particular, say, a piece from of classical music from the Romantic period, there was a scent that the artist had curated um, to match that so that folks' senses were completely heightened. There's only been two concerts in the 10 years that I've been working at Melbourne Recital Centre that have actually utilised smell in a really great and interesting um, way. It's completely underutilised as an art form and maybe more present in more experimental um, in yeah, more experimental music contexts. But I think that's something that we should definitely be playing with a lot more because, again, marketing lens, it's so centrally linked to brand. Yes. <laughs> um, uh, if you think about the most primitive creature, um, I don't know that this is actually, sorry. The, the most primitive creature with a brain, to my understanding, is a, is a, a nematode worm which is a parasite, um, it has, and don't hold me to this, but it's like 316 neurons. That's it. 40 of them are in a little cluster. That's the brain, the rest of them. Um, the vast majority of them are at the front and the back of its gastrointestinal tract. Um, the same is true for humans. If, if you mapped out a person by the quantity of sensory nerves they have, um, the absolute largest number is right here. It's why babies put things in their mouth. Right? Um, because they just there's a lot more nerves going. Um, if you can leverage smell, right? It, it, uh, and I should say th th there are different formulas, right? There are some smells that definitely, if you, if you think anything that is revulsive to you, right? You, you, one of the bits of scaffolding is we are all innately repulsed by certain smells vomit, for example. Um, so it's very tricky to play with. If you get it wrong, <laughs> it can be disastrous. Um, and the same if, we, if you think visually, I think there, any of the senses are effectively underutilized because they're so rarely used in effective combinations, right? Sometimes you get two concerts, oh, it's a light show and music, fabulous. Um, but then they miss out on everything else. Um, you know, the more of them you, you add, the more effective it will be, but you just gotta be really careful with 
with what you're triggering. Um, is that kind of um, culturally related as well? Like I'm from Southeast Asia, um, you know, which is generally, I would say, uh, a much smellier place <laughs> than, say, Melbourne, uh, you know, just in terms of food and, you know, um, even, even the types of food have stronger pungent smells you know, durians, et cetera, you know, those sorts of things that, you know, for someone like me is fabulous and, you know, kind of conjures up all sorts of, you know, positive feelings. But perhaps, Tim, I don't know, I'm making assumptions, you might be going no absolutely way. Uh, uh, short answer is rather the opposite. Yes, right? There, there, we would all have the same base scaffolding on which, since we've been born, we have been building and so depending upon where you've grown up you have bolted on to that module that says hey this is a really nice smell or this is a really bad spell to be avoided different things um and from a practical standpoint sorry this is just probably uh, there's a, a a restaurant in seattle that every morning sweeps coffee grounds into the cracks in the sidewalk out in front of their house uh, and they have a bakery going basically the whole time they're open, not because they sell a lot of bread, but purely for the smell. So, yeah. um, Whenever we're doing immersion into a new um, project in a new place, I like to ask this one question, um, what does it smell like? Because I haven't been there yet and it hasn't, you know, I haven't landed there yet and we do sort of, we ask people on the ground, what does it smell like? And sometimes they can recollect really strongly and sometimes they can't and I just like it as a really fun question and then we get to test it when we land oh does it actually smell like that and I always remember what they said about that smell as well out of all the things they said in the one hour interview it's like my favorite question <laughs> excellent so we are at the 7 30 mark um so I might just do a quick sum um I think things that I've learnt anyway is Google Maps are not very good for uh, embedding memory. Uh, we need to gossip more in a positive way, of course. Um, the last thing becomes important and so perhaps as we round up this conversation we might be cognisant of what the last experience might be and to give people a story. So I'm going to ask the panellists to, to finish up with a little bit of a story, um, a quick one, but uh, the, the question, which I can't remember, of course, is, you know, we, we've talked a lot about a whole lot of things and I just wanted to ask, how can this conversation help us to create better places and experiences in the future? What can we learn from this? So, Latoya. Um, for me, I would like to see memory making being utilised to challenge bias and misinformation and uh, represent more uh, diverse gathering of truth narratives and authenticity uh, for communities, businesses, etc. Um, I think particularly where technology and misinformation is concerned, the whole notion of virality, as we were talking about before, um, poses a really uh, deep threat to what is the humanity of memory making. Um, and so being able to preserve that is really central to preserving human society um, and what we bring to that authentically as well. Um, and then reflecting on the story that I shared at the beginning or the memory that I shared at the beginning, um, using memory making as evidence and insight um, into how memories can change and evolve based on the scaffolding, but also how your life circumstances change um, and being able to reprogram that, you know, through things like therapy and the structures that therapy offers, um, being able to make that more universally accessible is really, really important. Um, the favourite thing about creating experiences for myself is actually the community that it creates. So I would say in the name of creating more memorable experiences, 
more happier communities, whether it's a functional, you know, um, hospital experience, um, using colour blocking to help um, patients in distress move quicker and um, with less dis-ease um, through the ho hospital environment, or um, a place-based, you know, urban environment which uses landmarks which are intriguing and fun or quirky um, to bring a sense of, you know, delight and excitement throughout their journey, or to luxury hotels. Um, I think each one of these situations, it's all about the community that it calls to and it creates in the name of designing for happiness and in the design of yeah, creating better experiences for people. So it's very important. Ditto. <laughs> um, slightly different tack on answering the question. Uh, I would hope everyone leaves here with this notion that one can really proactively encourage creating memories and that doing that very specifically with other people, A, that will help make memories, um, B, it will address some of the issues that really are, we're battling them whether we realize it or not. Uh, there's a, a, a lovely, I think it's Denmark, has a, a, a library where you check out people and you hear their stories. Um, as a concept, like it's just phenomenal, right? Go out into the world, have an experience with someone, throw away the phone, interact with a random stranger just to make your memory and their memory and overcome this notion that we're different, right? Okay, every once in a while that might have some risk, but the upsides really, right, are so far in excess of the downsides. Like, I would, I just could not recommend that enough. That, and, and have some rituals, right? Have some rituals with your family, with your friends. You know what? Every, whatever it is, Thursday night, cook dinner, watch this TV show, do it as a ritual, and then go do the novel stuff, and when you come back next Thursday, tell the stories, right? Every time you tell a story, you will remember it better. It will change, the fish will get bigger. That's okay, <laughs> right? There's nothing wrong with that, right? Have fun with it, though. That's absolutely wonderful um, way to end. I think, you know, the, the idea of memory-making together, you know, so that it is more generative, so that we can have happier and more authentic communities, I think is a, a wonderful call to action. So, you know, thank you all for coming. We can sit around and continue to chat, um, but I probably do need to keep to time. Um, and, uh, yeah, thanks for coming and, and joining the conversation on memory making and all the best with your trip home or wherever you might go. Hopefully there is no, you know, late trams and all of those sorts of things and that you leave um, the M Pavilion on a really positive note. Thank you. Thank you. You're listening to an M Pavilion podcast. Conversations about design and the world we live in. For more, visit our archive at mpavilion.org and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts.